and welcome to Small Town Mysteries, where we talk about shit that went down in these small towns, shit that's unsolved, and shit that led to more shit. Except none of these stories actually involve shit so far. But who knows? They might in the future. So I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. Bringing you our second episode where we'll be talking about Rachel's hometown and where Christine and I went to college, one of which is a small town and one of which is not a small town, but we're just going to shirk the rules for a little bit here. So first up, we have Rachel. (laughs) So today I have a really interesting story about the murder of Kenneth R. Stewart, who was murdered by his lifelong friend, Oral Wayne Nobles, in 2003. So we're winding it back a little bit, taking it back to the early 2000s. Such a great time. Great music. Hmm. (laughs) Music, yeah. (laughs) The Iraq War. Questionable style choices, but, you know. It's coming back, though, like fanny packs and stuff. Honestly, I was just looking at a top that reminds me of something I might have gotten at, like, what was that store that every kid used to shop? Yes. Limited to. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I bought a fanny pack and a bucket hat recently, so Hmm. it's that kind of summer. Guys, we're still young. Let's let's own it. (laughs) Well, I'm saying that we should bring back the butterfly clips because nostalgia. (gasps) I used to be obsessed (laughs) with that. I would do this thing where I would put like, I would make a butterfly clip crown just like around my head. It was a, it was a look. Yeah. I'll have to find a photo or something. Yeah. I feel like I remember that. That sounds so fashionable. Let's bring that back. Let's do it. Portland. (laughs) So back to the murder of um, Kenneth R. Stewart. So there's a lot of layers to this story. So I'm going to start with the discovery of Kenneth's body. I might call him Kenneth or Stewart. I tried to do Kenneth. I couldn't really find anything about like what he liked to be called or anything like that. So I'm just winging it. All right. Yeah. Kenneth's body was discovered in March 2006 in a storage unit located in Whitman, Massachusetts, which is, yes, my hometown, (laughs) (laughs) a small town in South Shore, Mass, where no one knows, like nobody knows the name. It doesn't matter. If people ask me where I live, I'm like, oh, I live south of Boston because there's just no point in saying my little town. You guys do have the original Toll House, though. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You have, like, the inventor of the chocolate chip cookie. You guys drop a giant chocolate chip cookie on New Year's Eve instead of, like, a ball. (laughs) Like, it's kind of a thing. I understand, but, like, people still don't know that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying people know (laughs) it. I'm just saying it's what I would tell people. Okay. So how was Kenneth's body discovered? Of course, it was the awful stench of decomposition. Because, you know, very pungent smell. So the owners of the storage unit, which the storage unit, it was called Essex Street Storage Facility. I don't think it's around anymore. Honestly, I haven't looked, but I feel like I would know. I can't think of any. I can't think of any. That's my thing, too. So I'm like, eh. All right. So the owners of the storage unit contacted Noble's brother, because that's where he was living with at the time. His brother lived in Mojave Valley in Arizona. Another place that's pertinent to you. I was going to say, Arizona. I love this for you. 
I lived in Arizona for a year when I was younger. So it was kind of interesting to find a case that mingled between Arizona and Massachusetts. <laughs> so on March 31st, 2006, Massachusetts State Police went to investigate the report of a foul smell. Cadaver dogs led police to an unplugged freezer that contained Ooh. the body of Kenneth. His identity was determined through DNA testing because the comp of obviously already set in this is 2006 we're looking at three years so yeah they needed dna testing to identify the body police were able to determine that the storage unit where the body was found was rented under noble's name so they attempted to locate nobles that day but were unable to actually nobles tried to commit suicide before turning himself in to mohav mohav okay so I was told that I was saying Mojave wrong. I was saying Mojave, but it's Mojave County. Sorry to any residents of Mojave. Mm-mm. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we're all saying it wrong. Sorry to any residents of Mojave County. We respect you. We just don't know how to read. As I was saying, he tried to commit suicide before turning himself in to Mojave County Police Sheriff's Office in Arizona. He tried to slit his wrists apparently i don't have a lot of detail on that i don't know if he just like decided that oh i'm just gonna go turn myself in or he was too nervous to complete suicide i have no idea i just thought that was interesting all right so let me tell you a little bit about how the body was discovered because i left out the real kicker so are you guys ready yes okay so nobles had dismembered the body. Yep. Dismembered. <laughs> I don't understand how you could ever do that to a friend. No. Let alone just a human to being. To anyone. Yeah. To anyone at all. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't understand. Um, 13 pieces. Not even an even number. He couldn't even give him that much respect. I know. How rude. <laughs> how disrespectful. <laughs> did he like put them... Where did he put the pieces? Okay, so I... I'm going to go into that a little bit more. He mostly kept it in a freezer. So the freezer was like in a storage unit. So like when you just like open the freezer. But it was unplugged, right? So yeah, it was unplugged, like which is so stupid. Yeah. Oh. At least be smart Ew. enough to plug it in, right? I guess. But then you have that electrical bill. Maybe, well, storage units probably don't have outlets. I know you, it was really hard to find details about the case, but was there, like, were there missing person reports for kenneth at all or like what were people looking for him like i don't know i really couldn't find too much of that um i'm going to talk a little bit more about like their relationship which will kind of help answer that question but basically like they were lifelong friends and they moved to arizona together they lived together oh so they were like besties besties. yeah they literally lived together in golden valley in arizona Mm mm-hmm Okay. So there's a little bit more detail, and I will get back to that, I promise. So, like I said, 13 pieces, which is just, yeah, I don't understand. So let's just take a step back and talk about how he ended up like that and why he was murdered in the first place. Record scratch. You're probably wondering how I ended up like this. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Um, So again, like already mentioned, I had a really hard time finding a lot of details for this case. The first evidence I can find of them, like, meeting each other and really being friends is when they were both in their 30s. So in the 1990s, 
nobles owned a restaurant called Norway Diner in Orange, Massachusetts. It was in a small shopping plaza on East Main Street. He owned this restaurant for about 15 years before disappearing in 2004, which is when he moved to Arizona. Okay. Mm-hmm. A nearby restaurant owner <laughs> reported that Kenneth had lived in the diner's parking lot for a while. So first he was mm. living in a mobile home attached to a truck, and then later he was living in a van. Okay. Yeah, that's really all I could find. Like I said, I really couldn't find a lot. But it, it tells you a lot about instability and, you know, like maybe moving for a fresh start. I do know that he did serve time in the military, so I don't know if he had PTSD or anything like that. Because a, a lot of these people, they don't get the resources that they need, and they're right. forced to live on basically nothing. Mm-hmm. Especially back at that time because Kenneth was in his 60s when he was murdered. So I can imagine he served in World War II, like in the 40s or, or I mean, when it, like Vietnam or the Korean War. And like at that time, yeah, especially at that no time. like resources for veterans, yeah. So had a hard time getting on his feet. Mm-hmm. That is definitely a pattern that I found that I was able to find through like his friends and people that knew him. Okay, so they moved from Orange to Arizona. Golden Valley, like I mentioned. No one's really sure why they left. They kind of just got up and left. So that's kind of strange, too. Especially because he had the restaurant. Like, one day, it he just sold it, or... I don't know. Maybe it that's foreclosed or something. I'm assuming it was something like that. Yeah. I feel like it was probably forced. Probably. I feel like restaurants are not, like, profitable, generally. Like, yeah. you always sink your money into a restaurant and don't make it back. So I feel like... If that's, like, the only business you run, you're going to be running at a deficit, and it's only a matter of time. Like, I feel like that sounds really depressing, but, like, it's kind of the way the industry works. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, another point for financial instability. Yeah. I don't know. Very strange. So, when they lived in Arizona, that's when Nobles murdered Kenneth. Okay. So, he was murdered in Arizona. In Arizona, yes. But was the body found in Whitman? Yes. I'll get to, like, that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, he was murdered sometime between July 24th and September in 2003. The exact date is unclear. So, who really knows? So, the question I'm sure you guys are asking yourselves right now, why did he murder Kenneth? I'd love to know, Rachel. If you had to take one guess, what do you think? Money. You're right. It's always money, right? <laughs> money or, like, relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But usually money. Yeah, this case, money. Nobles claims that all of this was in self-defense. That Kenneth had attacked him first, and then Nobles attacked him, protecting himself, delivering a fatal blow to his head. So oh. Nobles claims that Stuart swung a bat, a miniature bat, actually, several times oh. at him. And that's when Nobles picked up a bag of bolts... And struck him in the head, killing him. That's a really unique murder weapon. Were they in, like, the garage? (laughs) It must have been. If there was, like, a baseball bat and a bag of bolts and stuff. I don't know. So this is what he claims happened. A little bit later, I'm going to talk about what friends and family members think happened. Kenneth was not in the best health, so a lot of people don't think that he would have done that. Like, he didn't have the, the chutzpah to do it. Okay. He, he wasn't in good <laughs> enough health, basically. Yeah, right. 
Why I chose the word chutzpah, we'll never know. I support it, though. <laughs> so Noble's attorney, Rick Williams of Bullhead City, said that Noble's was trying to protect Stewart's trust fund, which either came from an inheritance or from an industrial accident. The argument stemmed from mm-hmm. Stewart's wish to travel the country in his truck with several, several strangers. And Nobles was afraid that the strangers would take advantage of his friend of 25 years, who reportedly had a temper. And the killing was a case of imperfect self-defense, as Williams mm-hmm. put it. Interesting. I know. It's just like... It's the bag of bolts that keeps getting me, though. I don't know. I also, it's just like, why would you kill somebody just because they were going to go on a ride? I understand if you were wanting to protect them, but not murder them. Like, that does not make sense. That's the opposite of protection. Even if it's self-defense, like, he was swinging a miniature bat. Like, if someone was doing that at me, my first instinct would be to, like, try to get a hold of the bat, you know? Yeah. I don't know. If they were my friends, like, I'd be like, yo, stop and grab the bat instead of just, like, grabbing a bolt and swing it over their head. I'm also just curious about the money motivation. It was to protect his trust fund. But if you're not, like, a beneficiary of someone's insurance policy. Oh, he was. He was, like, his healthcare proxy or something like that. Like, he was going to get his stuff. Gotcha. I don't know. I just find it so strange. Like, okay, if he wanted to travel the country... And I understand you don't want people to take advantage of your friend, but aren't you mm-hmm. taking advantage by killing him? And then... But maybe maybe that's not the whole story, though. Maybe that's just the story he told. There's definitely more to it. No, there definitely yeah. is. I feel like I wish... I wish I knew. Also, another thing I don't get is Nobles was the one who, after they discovered the body, like, he came forward, right? Mm-hmm. And said, like, oh, I did this. I don't know. Why wouldn't they know the date like why wouldn't he just say like oh i killed him on this like they weren't able to figure that out that's just weird maybe he didn't know maybe yeah maybe he forgot like it had been a few years some people don't pay attention to this stuff i don't know can't relate but well obviously like i feel like if it was truly in self-defense and it was like this horrible mistake and he was like oh my god what do i do i guess i have to cut him into little pieces and (laughs) was so heartbroken over that like i feel like he would know the day right or at least the month (laughs) That's true. Hmm. But then again, it's not like you want to write it down in your journal. Like, on so-and-so, like, I murdered my best friend and then cut him up. Like, on April 26th, I wore a light jacket and (laughs) I murdered my friend. (laughs) (laughs) So who knows there? Okay, so what happened after this fight? So again, I feel like we were just saying, I feel premeditation, I feel like, is involved when you decide to cut up a body. At least to an extent. Like, I understand that you can panic. <laughs> like, you can panic. But then, like, he could have just called 911 and told them what happened. Yeah. In self-defense cases, people definitely get worried about how it's going to be perceived. So if it really was a self-defense case, he may have been hesitant to call 911 and report it because of how it may have reflected on him. So it's a self-preservation thing. It's not a wise self-preservation thing because reasonably, if you did kill someone in self-defense you'd have a solid enough story to back that up but my guess is this guy panicked and thought that the police wouldn't believe him or he knew he was lying i read a a slight amount of this case and just my feeling is that it was not in self-defense yeah 
but I can relate this to also um, like hit and run accidents mm-hmm. where um, someone might not intentionally hurt someone, but they murder someone or not murder I guess it would be manslaughter they end up killing someone or injuring someone on the side of the road or something and then instead of doing like the smart thing and just calling the police and helping the person out and like doing the humane Mm -hmm. thing they run away because they're like oh my god like what did I do it's just like a flight thing you know yeah do you want the legal term for that yes yeah so it's called depraved heart murder And it's when you have such reckless disregard for someone else's life and safety that your actions cause them bodily harm or death. So a really good example of that is like a hit and run where it's like you may not have necessarily been intentionally driving badly or drunk driving or anything, but you cared so little about the lives of the pedestrians around you or the other drivers that you drove in a way that was so reckless as to cause yeah. their injury. And then it's like the self-preservation thing. It's just like mm-hmm. really selfish, but. Yeah, I mean, when yeah. the adrenaline hits, you just get the hell out of there or you cut them up. <laughs> I don't know. I think when you cut somebody up, like you're crossing the next level or like a hundred levels. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, obviously it's horrible to kill right. somebody, but then to like make the active decision to cut somebody into 13 pieces. Yeah, that's... um. It's certainly a choice that he made. So, after dismembering the body, he took the body parts to a freezer in Bullhead City before setting out cross-country for Massachusetts. Road trip. Oh, what a great road trip it was. He rented a U-Haul, which makes me terrified to ever rent a U-Haul again. What if there was a dead body in it? I know, is that like... When you, like, buy a house and they have to disclose any murders that happened in the last five years, like, you rent a U-Haul and they have to be like, just so you know, some guy transported his dead friend's body in this, but, like, it was 20 years ago. You definitely don't. Like, no, no, absolutely not. I would be so skeeved out, but there's definitely no requirement for that. There's, like, not even a requirement in Massachusetts, which is ridiculous for the house. Sorry, you mentioned that. Like, they don't even have to disclose if somebody was killed in a house or murdered or anything, which is insane. That's a whole nother thing for another day. I could go on a whole tangent about that. I mean, on the other hand, you have me who keeps sending Rachel house listings that I'm like, oh, this looks haunted. And she's like, okay, no. (laughs) She's always like, well, what year was it built? And I'm like, 1830. And she's like, no. I'm like, but it's haunted probably. No. (laughs) Spooky. Haunted. Angry. We live in the Bridgewater Triangle, guys. I'm not doing it. I feel like you just have to embrace it at a certain point. But I could be wrong. Okay, well, you can live with ghosts. That's fine. I just, I don't mind living with nice ghosts. I just don't want demons. It's a crapshoot. You never know if they're nice or not. <laughs> no, I understand that. Okay, we got so far off topic. Okay, anyway, just, um. I digress. Why don't you do your, do your theories, the family's theories. I still have other stuff, ma'am. You're trying to cut my story short. <laughs> okay. So, as I was, so he drove the U-Haul to Massachusetts, to Whitman. And then in January of 2006 he became worried that the body was going to start smelling. So he came back to Massachusetts because he had fled back to Arizona after originally placing the body in Whitman. And he was definitely right because obviously it started to smell. That's how that works. All right, so now we're going to like hop back to when the body was discovered. And I'm going to talk about the charges that Nobles faced and 
how all of that unfolded. Okay. All right. So I said that he had turned himself in the day after that they had called about the smell. Originally, he was facing second degree murder. The hearing was scheduled for August 3rd. And at this point, he was facing anywhere between three and 18 years in prison, which is a big range also. And three years for um, murder? That just hmm. doesn't make any sense to me. Um, Derek Carlisle, the deputy county attorney for Mojave County, said, I believe this is an appropriate disposition. Obviously, the state will be arguing for the higher end of the sentencing range. Okay. Which didn't really happen, which is a whole other thing. But I will get there. It's also important. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing because this is not funny. Oh, no. It was so not funny. I <laughs> Just say it. Just say it. Okay. So, Mr. Carlisle, who I was just talking about, said that the prosecutor who handled Mr. Noble's case before mm-hmm. getting a promotion recently prosecuted a man who killed and disposed of his father in a similar manner. This was the second case of dismembering a body in a short period of time in Mojave County. So, it's not his first rodeo. It's no. not his first rodeo. It's it's very explicitly his second rodeo. Which Good. I'm just like, okay. is it really that common? Right. Like, that makes that, me anxious. That, that county is um, probably beautiful. <laughs> and we know how to pronounce it now. <laughs> All right. So like I said, he was facing second degree murder. But he took a plea deal. And he agreed to manslaughter and also pled guilty to fraudulent scheme. One count of tampering with physical evidence and four counts of theft were dismissed. So altogether, he was sentenced to 11 years in Arizona State Prison, which is not a long time considering what he did. And he received seven years for the fraudulent scheme, which I will explain a little bit more, and only four years for the manslaughter. Wow. How much of it did he serve? Do you know? Um, he was released in 2017. So he served all of it, or most of it, depending on how long the trial went on. Yeah. Okay. That, that's good, at least. But it's just so fucked up that you would get more time for fraud than taking someone's life. Yeah. That's um, bizarre. Yeah. Okay, so as if that isn't horrible enough, Nobles took this man's life and then stole from him after death, which is just lovely. He cashed about $27,000 of Stewart's social security checks, and he used some of that to hide the body. Oh my god. That's horrible. I'm assuming he used that money to rent the U-Haul and then rent the storage unit. Yeah, this is why I lean toward the, um, it was, there's more to the story, and it it was an intentional murder for his money, but... Yeah, I, I tend just, to agree with Christine on that. No, I agree too. I really don't. I don't think it just happened. I think he saw that Kenneth wanted to do something else and he wanted the money. Um, okay, so as I said earlier, he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. According to Arizona state law, you have to, he, Nobles had to serve at least 85% of his sentence, which he ended up serving his full sentence. Oh, okay. So hell yeah. <laughs> so happy about that, right? <laughs> Love this. Yeah. Justice. Um, So he was released in 2017. I wasn't able to find a lot about him. He's pretty old now. Yeah, he's 87 because he was born in June 1934. And he lives in Miller Falls in Massachusetts. Oh, so he's still around. 
So he moved back to Massachusetts from Arizona. I mean, he had nothing good there. It was just all murder and sadness. I mean, he's the one who committed the murder, so like... It's not like he had anything good here either. That's it's way more expensive to live here. The memories of the restaurant for a while. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Okay. So then let's talk a little bit more about Kenneth. Because I feel like I've talked so much about nobles. And I, I want to put spotlight on the victim. This is not about the murderer. It should never be. Because somebody lost their life. And that's just my opinion. It's like one of my pet peeves. When people like romanticize the murder. And then just like look over the victim. So I refuse to do that. I think that that's a good attitude. So Kenneth was murdered when he was 61 years old. He had a son. I couldn't find that much about him, which probably means that he wanted to be removed from all this, which I don't blame him. I would not want people to contact me about it either. Right. So like I said, he served in the military for a long time. He was born in Clinton, Massachusetts. He was a truck driver for many years and enjoyed going to flea markets which I don't blame him because I love flea markets. Yeah, those are a good time. I know, they're so fun. I feel like I haven't been to one in forever because, you know, COVID. All right, so what do his loved ones say about him? So I mentioned earlier how he wasn't in great health condition. So that's why a lot of people who knew him thought that he never would have attacked nobles first. They also said that that just wasn't really in his character, like, he would walk away before resulti- resulting to violence. Hmm. So keep that in mind. So Marcus Morgan, the son of his former wife, Bonnie Stanfill, who lived in Golden Valley at the time, again, said that he couldn't have attacked him. Um, he was not very active, energetic individual from what I remember. You never saw him doing yard work, but he was pleasant. So him and Bonnie were together for two years. Bonnie would help take care of him because he had diabetes. So he'd help him manage insulin injections and all that jazz. The last time Bonnie saw him was in either 2000 or 2001 when he suddenly left his home in Massachusetts for an unknown reason. She says that he trusted Wayne more than anybody else in the world and that he gave him power of attorney which gave Nobles access to his disability and veterans checks. Mm-hmm. And then his wife goes on to say, I never trusted him, like talking about Nobles, which is so horrible when you had that gut feeling all along and it turned out to be right. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, she last saw Nobles just before her husband left her. Nobles said he was going to do some business in Massachusetts. A month later, Stuart left her. She and Stuart were divorced in 2003. Oh. She said, I loved the man, and I feel really sick-hearted about this. And I just feel like that's sad. It's tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No matter how the relationship ended. The owner of a nearby business, who did not want to be named, said that Stuart was friendly, an elderly man who had befriended many of the diner's regulars. He was short, a bit stout, and had a white beard and mustache. The blue truck attached to his camper was his pride and joy. So he loved that thing. A lot of people were semi-shocked about this. They didn't believe that nobles could ever do something this horrible, but they didn't really believe that he was a great person to begin with. But obviously there's a difference between being a bad person and being a murderer. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. A pretty big difference, but still. Yeah, and nobody knew anything about the storage container. He never told anybody, apparently. And yeah. So the resources I used for this case include telegram.com. It was very helpful. The Free Library, uh, archive.boston, Mojave, Daily News, and Tapatake. So yeah, that's the story of Oral Wayne Nobles who dismembered his friend for money and then drove cross country, put him in a box, put him in a freezer. That freezer was unplugged. So it started to smell really, really bad. And then the police came and then they found him. Wow. Well, that whole story is just unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Yeah. I feel like that's an understatement. Like, wow, that that really sucks. Like, I wish I could have found more on it, too, because it happened in 2003. So I feel like that's relatively recent. So you think Mm -hmm. that there would be more information, but there was, like, next to nothing. Yeah. I mean, you still did good with what you had. Yeah, you did. Yeah, so I feel bad for his family. And I hope that Nobles is sad about what he did. I hope he's guilty. I hope he feels bad. And I hope he gets a paper cut every day. Ooh. Yep, that's what no. you get when you're a murderer who only served four they years. Like misery. served <laughs> four years for murder. Yeah, yeah for every yeah. day he should have sh- served in prison, he gets a paper cut and then has to use hand sanitizer. Okay, I like Oof. it. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> Vigilante justice. Uh, justice for Kenneth. That was awesome. Thank you so much for doing that research and sharing. So we'll bump over to Christine now, who's going to talk about a case uh, near where she went to college. Yeah. So this week, I'm going to be talking about a case from Western Massachusetts. And I figured since I went to college there uh, with one of our lovely co-hosts, Rachel, actually, who was just speaking, um, I would look into cases from that area. So Kate, who will speak after me, uh, I guess Kate and I are being somewhat anarchist, as I mentioned today, and going off the book. It's the second episode. I mean, hey, <laughs> it tracks. But yeah, technically, this is not super close to Amherst, which is where I went to school. But like, Western Mass is basically all the same west of Worcester, at least if you ask people from the South Shore of Massachusetts. And if anyone from Western Mass is listening, I know I'm probably wrong, but like, it's okay. Just let me do my thing. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so I definitely could have done this segment on Maura Murray, which is a name I'm sure a ton of people listening are familiar with, but I didn't. And that's because I wanted to choose a case with less recognition and also due to the fact that the Mara Murray case is extremely multifaceted. And I feel like that would just need to be a whole podcast episode alone. Yeah, there's a whole podcast on that that's like over 500 episodes just on that case. Wow. Wow. It's been going on for years and years and years. So I was scouring databases and websites for cases in the Western Mass area and came across a missing person case that is not even two months old. So because of how recent this case is, there's not going to be a ton of detail and parts of the story will likely and hopefully be updated in the weeks and months following this segment. But the idea that this woman may still be out there, or if you're looking at it from the more negative point of view, that a person could have potentially kidnapped her or worse, and they're still out there, made me feel that this was necessary to share. At the end of the segment, I will provide all details about where you can find more information about the case and who you can contact if you have any information that may be relevant, 
And as a trigger warning, there is going to be mention of the topic of suicide when we talk about potential theories for this person's disappearance. But I will also provide a trigger warning before I delve into that aspect of it as well. So Okay. So today I'm going to be talking about Megan Marone, a 42-year-old teacher from New York who checked into a hotel room on March 24th, 2022, who called her brother two days later on the 26th of March and who has not been heard of since. So before we dive into the actual case and the events leading up to her disappearance, I want to delve into just a little bit of who Megan Marone was, what she did, and give somewhat of a backstory. Megan was born in 1979 and grew up with her parents, three brothers, and one sister in Del Mar, New York. She was an experienced English teacher who had won numerous Teacher of the Year awards when she taught at New Jersey's Chatham High School. And within the past several years, Megan had moved back closer to home to Troy, New York, where she worked at Shaker High School. Past students and parents of students have expressed just how much she was loved within the school and how much of a welcoming and warm presence she was. She had a clear love for literature, music, art, poetry, and philosophy, and this was clearly exhibited when she taught. She was also an activist and really was about like sustainability. So she was a good noodle. She was a very good noodle. She was part of Democracy Now!, try to get word out about how we can help fight climate change. So yeah, so not much else has been said when it comes to Megan's background, but we do know that she was going through some emotional upset at the time of her disappearance. But to what extent and about what is not exactly known to the general public. This case really starts on March 24th of this year when Megan drives from Del Mar, New York to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is less than an hour drive, and checks into the Red Lion Inn. To everyone's knowledge, Megan is alone on this trip, and family and friends explain that they believe she just wanted to get away and relax because of this emotional upset that she had been going through. Mm-hmm. And while I personally couldn't really see myself doing the whole getaway alone, probably because I've looked into too many small town murder and disappearance cases to confidently travel alone, apparently this was not uncommon for her to do. So in and of itself, that's not alarming. Exactly. So the next detail that is known is that on the evening of March 26th, Megan calls her brother Peter and tells him that she's reading a book and having a bowl of soup in her hotel room. Peter has since been vocal that there were no signs that anything was amiss during this conversation. There were like no red flags that popped up for him. And he tells Megan that he'll talk to her the next day. And that's that. So then we jump to Megan's car, a black 2017 Subaru Impreza being seen on Church Street in Lee, Massachusetts, which is just the town over at around 12 p.m. by a resident on March 27th, which is the day after the phone call with her brother. Okay. The car was parked in a lot near Janet Longcope Park, a 46-acre park with hiking trails in Lee, Massachusetts. And I've inserted a couple pictures in the document just so you guys can get a sense of the area. Okay. That's pretty. Yeah. I guess pretty soon upon entering it, the brush... Ooh, why did I say it like that? The brush over there is very thick. <laughs> the brush. Uh, yeah, the brush. Le brush. <laughs> the brush. <laughs> Le brush is thick. I don't know. <laughs> I'm editing that part out. <laughs> I am. No! 
Le brush okay, was okay. thick. <laughs> it's a new. Yeah, but but it was. I just wanted to mention that. So Western Mass is like all woods, right? So you can yeah. find these trails literally everywhere. They're all around it's Massachusetts, especially in Western Mass. This is also part of the Berkshires oh, area. Which is just a vast amount pretty mountainous. of mountains and trees. So then if you look at the one below this, I put a terrain map on there. And as you can see, so she was in a Long Cope property, which is where that red marker is. And actually that area is not mountainous at all. It's mm. pretty flat. It's essentially a nature walk. Like, it's not challenging. Hmm. And I'll get into it a little bit later, but Megan was a pretty avid hiker, too. So it was kind of confusing for people. Like, they didn't think she would ever go there. But if you can look right below it, there's a really mountainous area that is definitely walkable from there. And it's off of Beartown Road. Just so you know, that'll connect a little bit later. So that's where she was last seen? So that's where her car was parked. Okay, her car. And people okay, sorry. say they potentially could have seen her, but it's not known for sure. There's been no cameras of her in the area, especially because the area is really rural where she mm-hmm. was found missing. Um, or I, I guess where her car was parked. I guess where she wasn't found. That's where they found her car uh, abandoned. So yeah. Anyway, a couple of these later... After Megan's family has not been able to contact her, they begin to worry that something is wrong and they file a missing persons report with the Bethlehem, New York Police Department. And at the same time, the Lee Police Department is notified that Megan's vehicle has been in the same spot for the past two days. When authorities check the car, they find some clothes, a small box of film CDs, and a pair of hiking shoes. Mm. Which she didn't take, so... She did not take. Mm. That's weird. Potentially, if she was a really avid hiker, maybe she had two pairs. I don't know. Like, maybe she had a pair in the car for when she just want, saw a cool hiking spot. But, like, it is suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. That's me trying to explain it, though. Mm-hmm. Also, like, a small box of film CDs. This is recent, right? People don't really use CDs. <laughs> I was thinking maybe the CDs that you put in your car. Mm-hmm. Which I guess would make sense if she um, she had an older car, but it was a 2017. Like, I know I had them just kept in my old car for a while in the glove compartment. Yeah, I had a huge CD collection in my last car because I didn't have, like, any sort of adapter for my phone or Bluetooth or anything. But, like, that was because I drove a 2005. If I had a 2017, probably not going to need CDs. Right. But... Who knows? Maybe she was old school. It kind of did sound like maybe that would be her vibe anyway. So the vehicle was unlocked and the keys were not found inside of it. Authorities then attempt to use her cell phone to get an idea of where she is and find out that on March 27th, her cell phone pinged to a rural residential area across Church Street from the Long Cope Trailhead Hmm. before the signal went dead at around 3 p.m. Following that, they did an extensive search of a two-square-mile area on March 29th, which included parts of the park, but also nearby areas off of Church Street. They also used helicopters, drones, and canine units, but despite their efforts, no trace of Megan is found, and authorities have gone in to search other areas of interest in Lee, but it doesn't seem that they found anything of significance. A lot of people were saying that the two miles was really small, considering that it was 46 acres 
but I guess the weather at the time did not really permit them to search the entire park. And also her phone has not been known, at least to the public, to have ever pinged inside of the park, Hmm. Uh, just in the residential area outside. So they say they only searched parts of the park, but it seemed mostly to be the surrounding area. Megan's brother, Peter, who was the one that she talked to on the phone before she disappeared, has been insanely active in trying to find her. He has told news outlets, uh, like one called to the Eagle, that Megan had been suffering from an emotional upset, but has declined to elaborate too much on the nature of it. And it sounds like even he is not fully aware of what caused it. Peter explains that Megan was dealing with some issues at school and that he doesn't know the full story, but does know that what happened at the school has caused Megan a lot of heartache. He also knows Hmm. the school gave her paid leave until the end of the school year. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like she was debating overtaking it, but we do know that she was supposed to check out on the 30th and she took that Monday off of school. That's all we kind of know. Interesting. Strange. Western Mass News reached out to Shaker High School, who provided the following quote, We continue to keep Miss Marone and her family in our hearts and minds. She is a valued and loved member of our school community. The district continues to provide counselors, social workers, and psychologists to assist any student in need. I mean, not giving us a whole lot, but it does make sense that the school wouldn't reveal aspects of an employee's personal life with the public. Yeah, there's not much they can say. Right. And the school also apparently sent out a letter to its teachers reiterating not to gossip about her leave of absence or what was going on. And they just said it was to prevent misinformation, which again does make sense. However, Peter is understandably frustrated with the school as it seems that even he does not know why Megan intended to take a leave of absence. And he has expressed his belief that knowing this information will provide important clues about Megan's disappearance. Peter has stated, I know that something did upset her that happened there and it would be nice to know what that was. He believes that someone in the district knows about his sister and what could have led to her disappearance. That's definitely sketchy. Like, I feel like the school knows something. I also understand not sharing things with the public. I totally get that. But I Mm -hmm. do feel like as a member of their family... Peter has a right to know, like, what was going on. Yeah, so I was thinking, sort of, it's unfortunate that they couldn't tell him what was going on with her, but that also tracks with, like, confidentiality rules about, like, employment and stuff like that. They wouldn't really be able to tell anyone what was going on with her employment. Um, But I just hope that they would still be cooperating with the police, and that, like, maybe if her brother wouldn't know that kind of information, that the police would at least know, like, why she may have been going away for a while or taking a leave... Because that could be really crucial to the investigation. So I get that he's frustrated, but as long as they're cooperating with the police in that regard, I don't think it's inherently suspicious for them not to tell him, you know? Yeah, I agree. I just don't like that. Well, I don't like it either, but it's it's the way it goes, you know? It, it, we I don't have to like know. it. I would want to know yeah. if something happened to my brother. I yeah. also feel like if I was one of those teachers that knew her and knew something, like, I would reach out to him. But then again, I'm sure you could get sued for doing that. Like, sue someone? No, so, like, like let's say you were a teacher there and you knew what happened and then you reached out yeah. to Fagan's brother and told them mm-hmm. what happened. Like, could you get in legal trouble for that? I mean, no. Technically not. So then why has no one come fired? Because you could get fired. Fired. Like, you would have employment consequences for defying a rule the school set in place, but it's not, like, technically illegal. 
if you, like, told the brother what the gossip was. That's fucked. I don't disagree. So Peter reiterates it's not like Megan to run away and doesn't suspect that that's what happened. He also states that based on her phone data, she never entered the park, as I said, but instead went down the street to private property. And I'm also just wondering why we're not hearing more about the residents, potentially. I mean, Mm. I'm sure maybe the police know, but it also doesn't seem like they know much. And why those people are potentially not being questioned, unless, I guess, maybe the property was close to the trail and far away from the house it belonged to. So just a lot of questions there. But... Peter explains it's also not like Megan to leave her car unlocked, and despite continued search efforts, no items from her have been recovered. Her phone, car keys, hotel key, and purse are all still missing. Peter also finds it odd that they found hiking boots in her car, as we kind of mentioned before, and, you know, like, why wasn't she wearing them if, if she intended to hike? So, additionally, the Lee resident who noticed Megan's car arriving around noon on Sunday reports that seeing her car parked there was a pretty odd sight considering that that day there was heavy wind, rain, and snow. So not ideal hiking weather. Not at Uh, all. Yeah. Especially Mm -hmm. in, you said this is near the Berkshires, right? Yeah. Yeah. In Western Mass. It snows like nothing you've ever seen up there. Yeah. This is also still March, too. So, yeah. Yeah. However, in going back through historical weather records, I honestly can't really find any evidence of snow or rain. Ooh, we love thorough. Yeah, yeah. It was it was definitely very very cold, and temperatures did dip pretty drastically overnight. And also, it was definitely pretty windy, but there was no evidence of rain or snow, at least on official reports. But hey, this is Massachusetts, and we're known to have some pretty weird isolated weather. So who knows? Yep. Maybe it was very isolated. <laughs> uh, but here is the weather data, so you guys can see. So it looks like. At around 12 p.m., which is when her car was first reported to be seen, the temps were, like, high 30s, and they climbed slightly up to maybe 40, around 3, but then they dipped into the, like, 26, 24 at Mm -hmm. night. So, pretty low. No precipitation. It's listed as, like, trace amounts. And then the wind speed was pretty high at that time. So, like, around the time that she was seen, up to 30 or even higher gusts of wind hmm. and sustained winds at like 20, 25. So. Did you find any, any evidence indicating that she was wearing a jacket or that she left a jacket in the car or something like that? No. All that I found reported in the car was like what I said. So okay. I don't think they found any of that in the car. And no one has for sure seen her at all mm-hmm. on that day from all the reports, at least what I could find. There were not any sightings, even, like, on cameras. People were trying to suggest maybe going through restaurants because, like, you have to eat. But Mm -hmm. it was possible maybe she had breakfast, like, cereal at the hotel in the morning and just went straight there. So, so yeah, no one really knows what she was wearing at the time. At least the public doesn't. Yeah. Just kind of curious. But that's a good question. It obviously says something about your plan if you're – wearing a winter jacket or not wearing a winter jacket like it's points to something either way so i just was curious if you're dressed for outdoor weather it wouldn't be as surprising for her to be hiking but if she was like not dressed for that then that wouldn't be your plan you know 
Yeah, so apparently two days later, the Lee resident and his wife, who had seen the car initially, returned to her car to investigate a couple days later and saw the same CDs, I guess clothes, I don't know what clothes, it didn't say jacket, but, and her pair of shoes, and he tried the door with the sleeve-wrapped hand, just in case, not to put DNA on it, and when they realized that it was unlocked, they immediately called 911. That's wise. That's the I wise love thing to do that they did a sleeve-wrapped hand because you need to keep (laughs) evidence intact. We love when people are rational when they happen upon crime scenes. Definitely a fellow uh, true crime lover. He's listened to a few pods in his time. (laughs) So as for how the investigation stands now, the number of searches have scaled back and the police have expended a lot of their efforts according to Peter. There have been a couple other missing women reported in the Lee area recently, including Chrisanne Rufo, 52, of Lennox, who was found dead a couple weeks before Megan's disappearance near October Mountain State Forest, just a 10-minute drive from where Megan was last seen or where her car was. And there's also an ongoing search the FBI is conducting for the body of an out-of-state person in the area around 30 minutes away. However, authorities state that all of the cases are not connected, and Chrisanne Rufo's obituary does state that she left the Earth on her own terms. So, gotcha. So, for some potential theories, lots of stuff is coming from my brain, but there's also uh, a lot of reading that I did <laughs> on discussion posts on the Find Megan Marone discussion page that is moderated by Peter, uh, and a little bit from theories posted on Web Sleuths. So Peter is pretty active on the Fine Megan Marone discussion forum and will respond to some theories. So that was really helpful in getting a feel for what might have happened and more of a feel of what probably didn't. Theory number one, which isn't necessarily the most promising theory, I just picked this one to start with, is that Megan somehow was injured on the hike and was unable to call for help. The temperatures that night were more than enough to cause hypothermia, and ultimately some people think she's just somewhere in the woods, her body remaining to be found. Mm-hmm. There are heavy weeds and brush brush in the area, which I've said before. <laughs> brush. <laughs> I don't know why when I, like, see that word, that's all I can, I don't, I don't brush. know. I say it I right in it. my head, but then what comes out of my mouth is not correct. But yeah, all that stuff would make her body pretty hard to be found, considering it was the start of spring at the time, and all of that shit would be growing pretty thickly. The main problem with this theory is that there's not any evidence that we know of publicly that Megan actually went on the hike that day, as her phone was not pinged inside the actual park area. But, like, who knows? Apparently service in that area is incredibly horrid. Like, incredibly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe a connection could not be established at all during her hike. An additional aspect of this theory is that she might have been geocaching, which is an outdoor activity where hikers use certain tools to hide and seek prizes. Peter believes that she could have been doing this at the time. He was kind of the one that suggested it. Um, And he at least knew that she had a history of doing that. And the prizes for geocaching are typically located in some pretty hard to reach, potentially dangerous places. So it's also thought that she could have walked over to the much more difficult Beartown Road Trail, which was on the train map I showed you earlier. Mm -hmm. Since she's been described as a fairly experienced hiker, and like I said, the Long Cove Trail is basically just a nature walk. But again, we don't know all the details. 
The chief police of the area has stated that he believes that Megan had her phone on her after she was parked and that there was activity on it, which they are using to assist in their search. There's been no mention that I could find, at least regarding if the phone activity was on the trail or off of it. Their initial search was of a two-mile radius, which included some of the trail areas, but also nearby properties. So it seems that her phone was definitely pinged around the nearby properties and did not enter very far into the park, if at all, if we're going by where they initially searched. Theory number two is that someone abducted her. Based on the weather that day, a lot of people don't think Megan would want to go for a hike, and they think it's weird that she left her car unlocked. She did have hiking boots with her, but, you know, maybe she does keep a pair in her car, like I said, if she's such an avid hiker. Some people think that she might have pulled over for navigation or for a million other possible reasons, like something was up with her car and someone else could have approached her or posed as a friendly stranger. In that situation, there might not have been many signs of a struggle or foul play. The area itself is pretty safe, and maybe Megan let her guard down on top of being preoccupied by her emotional state regarding what happened at school. So this could also potentially explain why she was pinged in an unexpected location, but there's not really much else to say about this theory because of the zero evidence we have of foul play. So the next theory is where the trigger warning for discussion of suicide comes in, so please be aware of that and stop listening or skip through to a later portion of the segment if you feel inclined to do so. Theory number three was that Megan committed suicide. She was described as needing to get away and having undisclosed issues with work. Her brother told her that he would call her tomorrow, which could potentially be a sign that he was worried about her and wanting to check up on her. Additionally, Megan was considering the leave of absence from teaching due to personal issues, which is somewhat unusual to do with only a couple of months left of the school year. So points to potentially something serious troubling Megan and that's why she was debating the leave. We do know from Peter that she had some of her belongings still at the hotel and this makes him believe that she had every intention of returning to the hotel. But again, another case that at this point is mostly speculative. Peter himself has stated everything points to the woods and that likely she is no longer with us, but I still hope to find her alive. Mm, that is heavy. That's that's sad. So, Christine, what is your theory? Um, my, like, true crime brain is, like, someone abducted her, but Mm -hmm. that's maybe just a feeling, but, I mean, the suicide one or getting lost could be potentially true. It's just the part that doesn't add up with that necessarily is if she did get hypothermia and she did die, the actual trail itself is, like, pretty pretty straightforward they should have been able to find her very fast this isn't like a complicated Mm -hmm. trail you know if she was engaging in like geocaching and trying to find something with horrible weather it's totally likely that she could have slipped and fallen and just not been able to get up and that maybe she's somewhere that they just haven't seen before and maybe things Mm -hmm. have started growing over her her body like who knows so that is likely but again like the other thing is that she was never pinged there Yeah, that's the weirdest thing. What I keep going back to is the mentioning the geocaching. So obviously, like, that's an app that anybody can look at, and you could look up Mm -hmm. the geocaches in that area. So my question is, was there one across the street, maybe? 
Yeah, from what I can see, there is one in Long Cope, which is why people think maybe she could have gone there because otherwise such an avid hiker just likely wouldn't go to that area. Right. But it wasn't in like the residential area. That's the weird thing is that she was pinged at that residential area. Yeah, so what made her or her phone go in that direction is is really the biggest question. Some people think someone could have abducted her and then driven her car to Long Cope because again no real sightings of her right so strange it just makes me feel like really unsettled it's very unsettling each time I was like well I think it was mostly this one there'd be something that would point me in like a different direction or that wouldn't really add up or make sense but hopefully the police know more than they are letting on from what Peter has said publicly it seems that there's nothing in the past like seven or eight weeks After that initial few weeks, they really haven't found much at all. Just radio silence. And during the first at least month and a half of the investigation, they also weren't letting anyone have like search parties or anything for her and go to the area because they said the weather just wasn't good. If you went off the trail to places where she might have gotten off the trail, maybe it would be dangerous. Which is tough because you have to toe a line between letting people help with the search and not endangering more people. You know, if there's a dangerous condition there. I don't know. I still feel like if they had enough people, I still feel like they could have at least done something. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, I didn't want I don't want anybody getting hurt. That's not what I want. Mm -hmm. But you could still I feel like they could they could have searched more in the park. There hasn't been any other mention of searches in the park that I found the only other one that they've done is I'm gonna totally pronounce this wrong and I don't have it in front of me so I'm probably gonna get it wrong but the Houstatonic River I think you got that right for the record really yeah don't I don't know though (laughs) it goes through the area and probably like five to ten minutes away from from where Megan was and they did a search of that but they said it was for an out-of-state body hmm that's the only information they just said it wasn't related to the case a lot of people at the time thought it was when they were initially doing the search but they just said it's an out-of-state well, I mean, body she would be an out-of-state body but if they said it's not her then yeah no other information about that one that i could find that happened a week ago i just think it's so strange like i just keep coming back to like like suicide and the thing is i feel like if she did commit suicide they would have found the body by now but I could be totally incorrect. I understand that the brush is thick. The brush? The brush. The brush. The brush. The brush. Is thick. And also, obviously, the weather in Massachusetts is a fickle bitch. So, like, who knows what Mother Nature could do? Probably make it very difficult to find mm-hmm. a body in the first place. But I do feel like you are more likely to find somebody who committed suicide. Because, for example, like, if she was abducted and murdered in anywhere in that vicinity, somebody could have helped like buried her body more, which would accelerate decomp and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why like the suicide is like mm, I don't know. There's there's, there's no not really theory. any theory that's like for sure or like I heavily lean toward this one. Mm-hmm. But as of today, Peter is still very active in trying to find Megan. There's a $50,000 reward for her safe return. There's a 24-hour tip line that he and other members of the family have set up and operate. The number for that is 413-327-6255. And there's a website that he has created called findmeganmarone.com. 
an email account called findmeganmarone at gmail has been set up for people to inquire about volunteer searches, which they're starting to do. And Peter is planning on hiring a private investigator and has set up a GoFundMe in order to help out with funding this. It has raised $18,500 of its 50000 goal as of May 14th, 2022. Wow. Yeah. And he's also set up two billboards in the area in an effort to keep her disappearance in the public eye. So he's just doing a lot to try to find Makes her. Which... He's doing what he can. What a great brother. You know? Yeah, it's a good brother. So Megan is 5'6", weighs around 120 pounds, and has dyed reddish auburn hair and green eyes. Pictures of her are up on the Find Megan Marone website. Additionally, Megan's family is actively seeking anyone who might have a dash camera, home, or business camera facing the street in Lee or Stockbridge that could have recorded Megan or her car on that Sunday, March 27th. If you have any information at all regarding her disappearance, you should call 911 or the Lee Police at 413-243-5530 immediately. And then I had quite a few sources for this. Part of it was the Disappeared blog. Berkshire Eagle was helpful with a lot of articles. Western Mass Mm -hmm. News, Daily Voice, some of the Albany, New York news. And then I got the weather stuff from Wonderground. Love that. I love the the weather stuff. That was very thorough. I was curious. I was like, how windy was it? I was like, how much did it rain? How windy really was it? So Yeah. Yeah. That was my that, case. That's interesting. Well, again, that would that would play a role, especially if it snowed. Like, I would want to know if it snowed because it could snow literally in July here, for all we know. Yeah. I hope they find out something super soon, and I really want to keep updated on mm-hmm. this case. I wrote that like a couple days ago, and or I started writing it like a week ago, maybe. I've been looking like every day <laughs> to see like if there's been an update or anything that has happened. So. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna gonna look in every now and then and just hopefully hopefully something is found. Well, maybe we can have an update segment. Yeah, I hope so. If something's found. When? And hopefully it'll be like that she's found. <laughs> yeah, like alive. Like I I'm I'm manifesting it. We'll have an update where she's found alive. Yes. Always hoping. Of manifesting course. It. We hope that she's manifesting. still alive. Yeah, and just wish her brother all the luck with his search because I can't imagine going through that. But he's brave mm-hmm. and strong. He clearly loves his sister and is doing everything to find her. Yeah. So all the power to him, honestly. Yeah. All right, Kate, I think it is you. <laughs> okay, so this is a complete 180. <laughs> I feel like... Maybe in the future we need to, like, align the vibes for the cases we're doing because, um, my case, it's not like it's, like, not serious. It's just, like, no one dies. So it's, like, it's a mystery, but there's, like, no murder. The stakes are high, but it's, like, I don't know. You guys can judge for yourself. I feel like it's just, like, on a kind of different level. I think that's nice because then we had, like, some really heavy stuff and now we can end a little lighter. Yeah, this one, there's (laughs) some levity in this. So I also do, there's um, a picture on the Google Doc that I uploaded, but I'm going to ask you guys not to scroll down to it until I tell you to, because I want to see your faces. I want to get your like genuine reactions. So welcome to my segment on this week's episode of Small Town Mysteries, where I'm going to be talking about something that is definitely a mystery, but also certainly did not take place in a small town. Um, So Christine said when I proposed this topic that I was adding a sprinkle of big city art heistery 
to the pod, which I really appreciated. So that's right, friends, we're talking about the Gardner heist, which is my favorite subject to talk incessantly about. Um, so we're talking about where we went to college, and you guys went to school in Amherst, which is, you know, populous, a lot of college students, definitely a college town, but also small. I got my undergraduate degree and my law degree, shout out to that, in um, a city, Boston, to be exact. So Beantown, the city on the hill, the hub, whatever you want to call it. It's not quite New York City, but it's also definitely not a small town. So we agreed that I could pretend I went to college in a small town if I focused on one particular neighborhood. So that's what I'm doing, but bear with me when I say that this case is so captivating that you're going to completely forget that I completely eschewed the parameters for the episode, the podcast in general, and I just broke all the rules today. I'm being an anarchist and it's going to be an amazing time. That's how you say that word. Anarchist? I'm learning so many things. No. Eschewed? Uh, uh yeah. I've literally Eschewed. always pronounced it askewed. <laughs> no, it's eschewed. Yeah. I did not know that That's either. That's good to know. There's a lot of words that I don't pronounce right either because I'm such a reader and not as much like a speaker. Yeah. So Since we're talking about words, I can't get over how you said heistery. I literally laughed for like 10 minutes when you said that because it was so heistery. funny. Heistery. You you laughed for 10 minutes. Rachel, I said that like two minutes ago. <laughs> okay, guys, we all know that I love to over-exaggerate. I'm known as the dramatic friend, so let me be. And we all love it. Okay, so... I went to Simmons University for my undergraduate degree. Um, technically, I went to Simmons College for three years, but it became a university in my senior year, and that's where I graduated from. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, my sister, aunt, woman, neighbor, nurse at my doctor's office, whoever went to Simmons, they probably did. Everyone's sister, aunt, woman, neighbor went to Simmons. That seems to be an, a recurring thing in my life. Uh, it's one of the only women-centered colleges left in the country. So Simmons alumni are very vocal about their love for the school and they're very involved in the alumni network. Personally, I keep a list of how many random people I meet who see my Simmons sweatshirt and then tell me about like their relatives that went there. Um, I've found a lot of like healthcare providers, a lot of nurses, like uh, go to the Minute Clinic and it's like, oh, you go to Simmons? I went to Simmons. And I'm always like, of course you did. Of course. Um, so it's in the dozens by now. But then there's also like some funny ones where sometimes they actually went to Smith, but they just get it mixed up. But anyway, the point is I went to Simmons. So Simmons is located in the Fenway neighborhood of Boston, which is more or less in Back Bay. Um, they have a residential campus and an academic campus. They're separate currently. They're about a block apart with Emmanuel College right in the middle. The academic campus has a particularly famous neighbor, which is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum which is home to Isabella's extensive personal collection and also the site of the country's largest art heist ever. Damn. And I do believe there was one in Europe in 2019 that was bigger, which is the only reason it's not the biggest in the world anymore. So I'll admit that the first time I went there, I didn't know about the heist. I remember when I said I was going to Simmons, some people were like, oh, you'll be by the Gardner Museum, the heist. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so they don't necessarily talk about it in the museum, like the exhibit captions don't mention it per se, but because of a specific parameter in Isabella's will, all of the empty frames are still hanging in the exact same place where they've always been, because um, she didn't want any of the collection disturbed or moved. So the frames are still there, um, because the paintings were cut out of the frames. So when I first walked into the Dutch room, 
which is the main um, source of the robbery, and didn't know anything about it, it looked like they'd framed the wallpaper, basically. Like, it was, like, slightly discolored wallpaper. And then my professor told our class about the robbery. And that empty frame, this one in particular, that center stage on the main wall in that Dutch room, it took my breath away. And I feel like I'm not really an art person, but I am a true crime person, and that's why it took my breath away. Um, Because this is really quite the story. And if you're thinking, oh, it's an art heist, how entertaining can it be? Stay tuned. So on March 18th, 1990, 13 works of art, some of which were priceless, were stolen from the Gardner Museum over the course of roughly 81 minutes. Two men dressed as police officers responded to an alleged disturbance call at the museum. And the security guard left the door unlocked for them and let them in, which was a breach of protocol. Um, People theorize that the guard was stoned or drunk or both, or maybe even in on the heist. Um, This is unclear and heavily debated. The security guard has said since that he let the police in with no further questions because he had tickets to a Grateful Dead concert the next day, and he didn't want to get arrested and miss it. So I, I really just hope he wasn't involved in the heist because I really admire his motivations, um, and I admire him. So the fake cops claimed to have a warrant out for the guard's arrest, so they cuffed him and they actually wrapped his head in duct tape, which... um. Oh. I put a picture in the dock, so if you scroll down to that now, it's actually, like, really, it's kind of creepy. Oh I think gosh. it's a really creepy okay. picture. Oof. Wow. Yeah, that that does not look... Yeah, you want to look at it, Rachel. Pleasant? And they, like, covered his eyes and everything, like... Oh! Poor hair! He has such long hair, too! He has such long hair, exactly. And And so I think one of my biggest reasons why I don't think he was involved... Is because of how thoroughly, like, his eyes and head was, like, covered in duct tape. I just feel like if you were involved, they would be gentler <laughs> to their co-conspirator. But anyway, I just, that picture, like, is probably the only part of this whole case that, like, genuinely disturbs me. This was probably taken by a police after? The police officers, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I'm just saying that I'm living for this fanny pack that he's wearing. Oh, yes. We love the fanny pack moment. Once again, coming back. (laughs) So um, if you're if you're thinking about this and you want to see it, you can Google Gardner Museum heist um, guard photo and it'll come up. There's there's a couple of them, but that's like the main one that just sits with me because I really did a number on this guy. And I also I want to backtrack for a second and say that there were actually two guards. Um, because this exchange is so hilarious. So there was one guard who was there originally when the police got there and another guard who came partway through. So the first guard legitimately thought he was getting arrested because they didn't tape him up right away. They just cuffed him. So he was like, oh, I'm getting arrested. Shit. And he kind of was like, oh man, like what if this was a robbery? That would be crazy. And remember like this guy's a deadhead. So like he's not having the most coherent thoughts. Um, And then the second guard shows up and also got arrested. And he was like, oh, my God, what did I do? And they were like, you're not getting arrested. This is a robbery. And you just you just know that the first guard really felt like an idiot. Like, oh, shit, I fell for it. You know, like something about that just is funny to me that the first guy's like, yeah, of course, I'll just arrest me. You know, and then like the second guy's like, don't arrest me. And they're like, we're not arresting you. Like, (laughs) it's a robbery. (laughs) And it's like, duh. So the second guard actually said they don't pay me enough to get hurt 
protecting this place, which I really <laughs> I think is beautiful. Honestly, um, I feel like I resonate with that so much. These guards just are really two amazing personalities. And I just maybe they weren't maybe they weren't great at their jobs, but they were funny. Well, I feel like it's like the same thing like when I used to work at like in restaurants or like things like that. Like if anyone ever came mm-hmm. to burglarize or rob me, I would just be like, "Here you go." Like I don't get paid enough. Put your hands up. Yeah. Well, it's like that that meme that goes around that's like, I went to Staples and asked if I could take the camera out of the box to look at it, and they said, I wouldn't care if you killed me right now. It's like, these people are just doing a job. There's only so much you can put into it. I mean, yeah, that's true. Again, their job is as a guard, so it's a little bit worse. <laughs> yeah, but, so it's uh... like, <laughs> it's like you're failing at the one essential purpose of your role, but but you were funny while it was happening, so like... That's true. Let it slide, I guess. We'll give you a little applause and then we'll move on. So um, the case has been under investigation for 32 years and no arrests have been made, nor have any of the works ever been recovered. Um, But there have been a lot of purported sightings of them over the years and the museum still offers a reward for the recovery of these pieces. Um, They are offering $10 million, which is the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. And I think I say it later. Yeah later but um the only bounty that's ever exceeded that is the bounty that the united states government took out on osama bin laden wow wow so if you want like a, a scale for um how much money this was it it was a lot and it was it was worth a lot yeah and and as i talk about this it's just really not a small town mystery because it happened in this one small area this one neighborhood and then it really kind of blossoms so um We're just going to keep pretending this is a small town. So only 13 items were stolen in total, but the combined value was over $500 million. Um, And we all did the art history unit in AP Euro. So I'm going to see how many of these artists you guys recognize. So among the items stolen was the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is Rembrandt's only seascape. The Concert by Vermeer which is one of only 34 paintings that he ever made, so in and of itself worth a lot of money. And a bunch of other sketches and paintings by Rembrandt, Degas, Manet, and Flink. Interestingly enough, the thieves also stole an eagle finial, which is sort of like the thing that goes on top of a flagpole. But it really didn't have much value. Like, it looked probably more expensive than it was, which means that the thieves may not have really had any art history knowledge. Or... They panicked and just took what most looked the most valuable because it was gold, you know, like, so it would look expensive. Um, so maybe they just didn't do their research, which, like, if, if you're going to commit the country's largest ever art heist, the least you can do is, like, do your research before. Um, I don't know if you just heard that noise, but the cat just opened the door. <laughs> Hi, Earl. He's leaving. <laughs> this says, Kate, I'm done with your shit. Yeah, he's like, he's tired of listening. So plenty of more valuable works were not stolen, which is curious and definitely leans toward the theory that the thieves didn't have an art history background or didn't put much planning into it in terms of what they were actually going to take. So there's quite a few theories. Um, So I'm going to dive right into them. So the first theory is obviously the security guard. His behavior is suspicious. There are some odd things he did earlier in the night. Um, he opened and closed a side door. He claimed it was to make sure it was locked. Um, and police thought that could have been, like, a signal to the robbers. Like, okay, like, 
now's the time to like say you have a disturbance call and come to the door. Um, investigators actually said that they didn't think the guards were smart enough to pull off the heist. Wow, burn. <sighs> yeah, so probably wasn't either of those guys, which is like really unfortunate that they like outright said that especially because like the guard he's still alive he still talks about it occasionally and stuff he's like given descriptions of the robbers and stuff recently but like the police were like he's too stupid i actually have another question about something you said a little bit ago so were the paintings and art stolen from one specific area or was no. it from all around? It was from a few different rooms. And okay. I don't have this in front of me, but they have alarm records of where the thieves were and in what rooms. And mm-hmm. it seemed to be like concentrated in the Dutch room was the main one and then one other room. But there was a painting taken from a third room, but the alarm never sounded in that third room. Hmm. So that's one major thing that points to the security guard being involved um, is that like the security guard could have like disarmed the alarm in that one room. So yeah, it was it was a few places throughout the museum. And I don't know if have you guys ever been there? No, no. We'll have to take a field trip because I so I've been a few times because I obviously lived next door to it and got in for free for four years. But it's kind of like maze like I get lost in there really easily. I get lost everywhere, but like there especially. So, um, yeah, they definitely, like, theoretically knew what they were going in for, but also hadn't done their research. Yeah, that that's so interesting, because I was thinking maybe, like, if, it, if they were all from one area, maybe they were just like, okay, well, there's, like, a few expensive ones from this area, and this is, like, the easiest spot that we can get to. Right, like, we can get there most easily. But no, they didn't. They hit, like, multiple different rooms, and there was even a painting taken from a third room that never reported an alarm yeah. sounding. Hmm, so. That's just a little sus. So for the second theory, uh, it's everyone's favorite Bostonian crime boss and longtime man on the run, Whitey Bulger. I don't know if you guys remember where you were the day he got arrested, but I remember where I was the day he got arrested. (laughs) I was at Matt's house eating pancakes and we had seen Taylor Swift the night before. It was in 2011. (gasps) I like very vividly remember Matt's mom was like, oh my God, they caught Whitey Bulger. (laughs) And I was like, I have no idea who that is. Um, so Whitey led the Winter Hill Gang, which was thought to have potential involvement in the heist. Um, he always denied it. Uh, the theory holds that Whitey gave the works over to the Irish Republican Army, also known as the IRA, and that all the works are in Ireland. Um, so he's either in jail now or dead. I don't remember. He's dead. Like, pretty, pretty brutally dead, I guess. Um, oh yeah, he was, Okay. His eyes were gouged out, uh, like many stabs by uh, fellow okay. inmates there. It was pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember, obviously I remember that he was arrested and I remember his trial and I remember him going to jail and that they were like, he's going to die in prison. And then I just couldn't remember if he had or not. But yes, now in hindsight, I do remember that. It just seemed so inconsequential because the fact of the matter is this doesn't seem to be a very viable theory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I didn't put a lot of time into researching it. He was killed... On October 30th in 2018. Yeah, so he's, yeah, he's been dead for like four years. So four years into the investigation, um, the museum curator, whose name was Anne Hawley, she received a letter from someone who claimed to be a third party willing to represent the thieves in negotiations for return of the art. But they also very conveniently claimed to not know the identities of the robbers. And basically they said print a coded message in the Boston Globe if you're interested in negotiating. So Anne did exactly that. 
And then the negotiator said, actually, this is too big of an investigation and was never heard from again. So that was a dead end. Also couldn't, like, the veracity of that is questionable, whether or not that person actually was a third-party negotiator, was one of the robbers themselves pretending to be a third-party to alleviate suspicion. Really just unclear, total dead end. And then nothing else ever came of that, which is really unfortunate. So third, police suspected a man named Brian McDevitt, who had attempted a similar heist in Glen Falls, New York. And the connection there is that his previous heist also specifically involved a Rembrandt. Um, So there were a few parallels, and they interviewed him and ran his prints, but nothing of note came of it, and he has since passed away. And the biggest development came in 2013. The FBI announced that they had a high degree in confidence in the identity of the robbers. They believe it is the Merlino gang from Dorchester. They retained loyalty to the Boston Mafia boss, Frank Salem. So if you thought this was, like, an art heist, the Mafia is involved. Um, So apparently a member of that gang may have cased the museum for weaknesses as early as 1981, so a full nine years before the theft. Um, Wow. Talk about premeditation and planning. This could have been a long time in the works. You would have thought that they would have planned their other shit better if that was the case. Right? Do you think they'd know what paintings to take that were worth the most money? I don't know. My theory is maybe there was like multiple people who like knew what to go for, what they wanted, and then there was somebody who was maybe just like the bronze or whatever, who was just like, ooh, Mm. I like this, and took it. Pretty, yeah. (laughs) Well, I also wonder if maybe the people who masterminded it and the people who carried it out were different people. So, like, the people who masterminded it were just like, take this, this, and this, and then the people who actually carried out the robbery took the wrong things. Ooh, that's true, too. That seems to be where my theory lands, is is that the same people who put all the thought into it weren't the ones who actually did it. So two particular men named Robert Gorenti and Robert Gentile were specifically believed to have been involved. Um, Gorenti died in 2004, but his wife claimed that he had possession of some of the artwork and that she had seen it. But she also claimed that he'd given it over to the other Robert, Robert Gentile, prior to his death. So the other Robert was questioned, and eventually they served a search warrant on his house. The only thing of note that they found was a false floor in his backyard, which had, like, a secret ditch inside of it, but it was empty. And apparently, uh, Robert Gentile's son said that it had flooded a few years before, and that his dad had been really upset when it flooded, because apparently whatever was in there had been destroyed because of the flooding. So that would track if it was, you know, priceless artwork that you were hiding from a, a large heist. Yeah, you'd be a little upset if it got destroyed. Oh. Um, and they also found in inside the house, they found newspaper clippings about the robbery and estimates about what each painting would be worth in the black market. That's pretty suspicious. That's very suspicious. I literally have in my notes, sus. <laughs> I feel like there's so many, um, I don't know. I feel like these people aren't being good at what they do. Why would you put, like, super expensive paintings in, like, a... In the ground. Underground, like, in the ground. Like, outside? Like, uh, what? I, well, I guess, look at it Look at it this way. There's no way to safely store it in your home. Because, like, say you have, like, a TV repairman comes in and he's like, hey, that looks like The Storm on the Sea okay. of Galilee by Rembrandt. I guess so, but maybe you could buy, you like, could a it- massive safe yes. with, like, protective Thank shit. you. I don't Storage know. Storage units. There's a lot of things that you could do. 
Because you could put it in something and then bury it. Like, it doesn't need to be... He should have protected it from the elements. Yeah. Like, that's stupid. So that is one potential theory. Um, but also, he... This guy, Robert Gentile, went to prison for drugs. Um, but he never offered up any info on the heist for a more lenient sentence. So either he wasn't involved and genuinely had no idea where the art was, or he was afraid of who would hurt him if he narked. I think it was... Which is what I think. Yeah, yeah if he narked. Because, you know, the mob. Yeah. It's literally the mafia. I wouldn't mess with them. <laughs> yeah, the mafia. In Boston. No. I would not want to fuck with In them. Boston. In Boston. No. In Boston. The mafia. Okay, so... <laughs> Finally, an associate of known art thief Bobby Donati, a man who was actually Bobby Donati's superior at the time of the theft, claimed that it was Bobby who was responsible and that the FBI had misattributed it in 2013 when they claimed that it was the Merlino gang. So Bobby was actually murdered a year after the heist happened, so they can't interview him about it. But there's a lot of interesting evidence that ties him to the case. So Bobby Donati was close friends with Robert Guarenti, and is apparently the person who gave him the stolen artwork. Meaning, the works ended up in the hands of the Merlino gang, but the Merlino gang didn't carry out the theft. Also, Donati and Gorenti were allegedly seen together at a club in Revere, not long before the heist, carrying a bag of police uniforms. And you'll recall that the robbers got into the museum under the guise of being police officers in very realistic-looking uniforms so i'll let you make your own conclusions about that and so one final fun fact I, I mentioned this in brief but i have um the numbers here the reward for the theft is the largest ever offered for property the only bounty higher is the one that the u.s government placed on osama bin laden for 25 million dollars so um i know i'm someone who lived really close to the museum and people talked about it a lot I got in for free, so I used to go all the time and look at the empty frames, and you do a lot of research and watch a lot of videos on it. I definitely knew about this pretty much as soon as I went to college. It was, like, one of my first days of classes when the professor took us there for a field trip, so it was, like, right away. But for such a huge case, I feel like not a lot of people in our, like, age group know it. I think I've listened to a podcast on it, honestly. Okay, yeah. Because it's familiar, but I didn't know, like, a lot about it. Um, how about mm -hmm. you, Chris? I have only heard about it from Kate because I know that you've talked about it before. I definitely talk not, about it all the time. <laughs> definitely not in anywhere near as this much detail. So if it yeah. weren't for you in general, like I would not have known about it at all. Yeah, it's one of those cases where when I was growing up, maybe I knew like, oh yeah, there was like that art robbery in Boston. But like I didn't know the name of the museum or like any of the details. But then like you learn about it and it's like the freaking mafia is involved. Like it just has so many more layers to it than you really expect. And for sources, I just want to thank BuzzFeed Unsolved. They have an amazing video on this case with reenactments, if you are into that, which I, I thought was kind of delightful, honestly, to watch. Also, the museum itself has a lot of resources on their website. So inside the museum, you wouldn't necessarily know about it unless you knew about it. I know the first time I went, I had no idea until someone told me about it. But their website is actually full of resources about the heist and the investigation and information on where to go. And also, there is a four-part documentary on Netflix that I watched that um, is where a lot of the info comes from as well. Um, very thorough, and that really gets into the mafia side of it. So definitely recommend giving that a watch. It's about four hours long total, and it's just really every bit of info you could possibly want to know. And they interview, I think they interview the guard, they interview the museum director, 
at that time. It's really, it's very thorough. It's just so, so cool to learn about, in, in my opinion. I guess I just want to close out by saying, please forgive me. This is not a small town case, not even remotely. But we can pretend that the mafia would be involved in a small town case. Yeah. Yeah. In the largest <laughs> art heist in the United States. Because <laughs> nothing says small town mystery like the largest art heist in the United States history. <laughs> I just find it so crazy that there's been no trace of it. Like, you don't think they'd try and sell it? Somehow, right? And so I, I didn't include this because it's still like a little like hazy, but the Merlino gang was operated out of a like an auto garage. Um, and there are some reports that some of the sketches were like on the walls in the garage. Hmm. Like in in the body shop. Oh my god, could you that, like, imagine? People, people like very casually would be like, Oh, that that's like a nice sketch and it was like a but apparently they're obviously not up anymore. But the FBI, if the FBI comments on it, they maintain that they know who did it and that they're pretty sure they know where it is. But it's never been recovered and they're keeping their cards pretty close to the vest. Yeah. So I, I really would be curious to see, I know with the most recent development being about nine years ago, I would be really curious to see if these artworks are ever recovered. The Netflix documentary does a really good job of going into how they might have exchanged hands over the past um, few decades and just how like it makes it almost impossible to search if they were sold in the black market especially because there are people who collect items like this and they have like whole rooms in their houses where it's like here's all the art no one can know that I own you know like because they know it's stolen and that's the appeal of it for them so there's just no way of knowing I mean even if they know who took it and who they immediately handed it off to that was 32 years ago who knows where it ended up I think it's just one of the one of the most interesting cases. So that's from my small college town of Boston, Massachusetts. So small. I'm, I'm well, glad you liked you. it. Yes, <laughs> thank you so much, Kate. That was awesome. And it was a nice change of pace from the other two. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, I, <sighs> I like being able to bring a little bit of levity when I can. So, all right. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Small Town Mysteries in which we talked about two small towns and then one really not small town. Um, that's not even a town and definitely not small. So, um, <laughs> tune in next time. <laughs> tune in next time for more small town mysteries to see if we actually follow the assignment. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think we're yeah. going to for some reason. I Because it's feel the it. second week and maybe we'll just change the name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> just yeah, mysteries. Well, we'll, uh, we'll have to sleep on that because I feel like small town mysteries is like the way to be, but... Yeah. We can't keep breaking the rules like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, anyway, tune in next week. We'll um we'll see if we can follow the rules. Yes. Bye guys. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.